you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. I think that people are invested in being a patient because they want to get better. But at times the whole system says, okay, that's what you are. You are a patient. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Think about this. Being ill versus having an illness. Let that sink in. Today on the show, a peek into the fascinating world of psychiatric oncology with my friend, Dr. Guy Maytal, Chief of Integrated Care and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Graduate School of Medical Sciences. You know, I've often heard the phrase, ambassadors of dignity, when referring to the empathetic mental health professionals who not only listen to the lyrics, but hear our symphonies of grief, struggle, and challenge that we bring to bear when bad things happen to good people. Guy is one of those heroes, and it was a privilege to dive deep with him into conversations about how the word rehabilitation is making a comeback the sheer necessity of mental health care to lift people up, make sense of the madness, add a handrail to the staircase, and restore some of the missing parts when we're broken. We also talk about the fabulously insane world of medical reimbursements. Uh Uh-oh. I think I just went blind. Unlike quote-unquote normal procedures where you're poked and prodded, radiated, maybe stitched back up. Well, we hope that you're stitched back up. Mental health is the outlier tossed about as just a nice to have not okay enjoy the show that's right you don't want to go for an hour then like there's no film in the camera right that has happened we've learned our lesson this is like episode i think 56 of my show so yeah you know you're benefiting from others losses aren't we all (laughs) aren't we all (laughs) says the psychiatrist well you know or in the world of cancer right like cancer is this unique field in medicine where it is everywhere in medicine we're benefiting as patients and providers and doctors from the experiences of our predecessors or from the mistakes made or the lessons learned or you know people participating in research but in cancer in particular you know, most people in who are in treatment for cancer are often in some study, right? And it's, so it's very overt that, yep, I'm going to get treatment, but I'm also directly contributing to future generations of patients. So for those just joining us, I'm talking to Guy, <laughs> Guy Maytal. <laughs> I love starting episodes in the middle of sentences. I really yes. do. It's, it's actually a really great way to start a conversation. Yeah. Uh, you are the uh, chief of integrated care. And psychiatric oncology, I love the two words put together, assistant professor at Weill Cornell, and we met through a mutual young adult cancer survivor friend advocate, shout out to Rebecca Cherry, 
And um, first thing I want to ask you as we conduct this conversation is please don't analyze me. How's that for a starter? No promises, but I'll do my best. So I'd like to just start by, you know, for the listeners, Guy and I spoke a couple of weeks ago and got acquainted and, and I learned so much from him. I don't have a lot of, I guess I'm not a doctor clearly, and, and all of his views represent all of his clients. I'll let him debunk that at the end of the show. But psychiatric oncology is fascinating to me because it's, I think it's undiscovered. I think it's under-discussed. I think it's underutilized. But you brought up this, it's almost like a dogmatic statement of being ill versus having an illness. Is that a yeah. self-identifier? Talk to me about that. Yeah. So just to, to, to clear up the humor, now, my views are my own and don't <laughs> present those of my patients Yes, or, or my organization. Yes. Um, now, one of the things, uh, so I appreciate the opportunity just to speak with you and your listeners about psychiatric oncology and psychiatry more broadly. And one of the things that I think about quite a bit is questions of meaning and illness and how those two interface. And one of the challenges that people have, you know, it's in, in, in mental illness in particular, it's, I think it's the worst. People are identified as their disease. So, you know, people say, I am depressed. She is bipolar, right? Nobody says, I am breast cancer. <laughs> yes. Uh, right? <laughs> right? Nobody, say, nobody talks like that. But the moment you are a thing, then you're stuck. Right. That's what you are, you know? Like, I'm a human I'm never going to be a dog. It's just never going to happen in my lifetime, as far as I hope. But like, you know, once you say I am something versus I have something, then there's some space to play, to, to change, to improve, to distance. So I think about that quite a bit because I think when people are diagnosed with cancer, there's almost, it kind of takes over, doesn't it? It just takes over your whole world appropriately in some cases and, and I would say ineffectively in other cases. I've never heard that before in, in, yeah. in 25 years of whether I was a patient or an yeah. advocate or whatever, the idea of I am breast cancer versus I have breast cancer and then the I am ill versus I have an illness. I have an illness. Reminds yeah. me of the Colbert book or the John Stewart book, I am America and so can you. Yes. <laughs> Just like you're, yes. you're changing the way we think about words. Very Carlin of you, if I may, uh, opine so. Well, you know, we actually create with words. That's what we have as human beings. So the moment someone says to you, know, I, I, the other thing I say to people, um, well, before I go to the other thing, about this issue, I think it, it's something that I've been thinking about for a number of years in my work, and I think it's overlooked. I think that people are invested in being a patient because they want to get better. It's completely appropriate. But at times, the whole system says, okay, that's what you are. You are a patient versus it's a job you've got. You didn't want it. You know, someone gets a diagnosis of a major medical illness who is unfamiliar with having illness. All of a sudden, you've got a new job. You didn't ask for it. You're not going to get paid for it. You know, the only thing that's at stake is your life. Uh, that's a joke. Like, but, it's, <laughs> but you're working. This is the job. And... I think it's a lot easier to deal with it when you remember it's not the totality of you. It's something you do. What I'd like to learn from you, and I know my listeners, there's always this, you know, talk me out of the, I would say, the preconceptions of this battle between psychology and psychiatry. Is there one? Does it matter? Is there judgments and stigma? Why do both exist? How do you yes. coexist? And where does this factor into the, you know, you mentioned this is a 
an experience you didn't want to buy into and now you can shop around for things to help you. Yeah. So uh, there is no battle. That is, I there's no battle. These right. are mutually. We've settled it, everyone. It's over. It. We're it's done. It's over. It's done. There's no battle. There. No, <laughs> <you know? laughs> what there really is, is a shortage of resources across the board for people who need them. The world of psycho-oncology, it's actually, or psychiatric oncology or psychosocial oncology, the names are, a little, there's, there's this kind of slight variation depending on the institution that we're talking about. But fundamentally, it is a field that focuses on the psychosocial needs of patients and caregivers who are dealing with cancer or have dealt with cancer. And in the broadest possible sense, your feelings, your worries, your thoughts, um, the interpersonal issues you deal with, patient, you know, self-advocacy or advocating for your loved one. Um, and uh, we also work with you know, clinical providers, doctors, nurses, etc. One of the things that's really great about psychooncology in particular is that it's truly multidisciplinary. Like when I go to the psychooncology meeting each year, I mean, this year it's virtual, but uh, in past years and hopefully future years, uh, MDs are in the minority. Uh, there are psychologists, there are social workers, there are chaplains, there are uh, psychiatrists, there are other... Uh, other services, other degrees, you know, physical and occupational therapists come by. Palli we interface with palliative medicine. So it's, especially around cancer, it's very, very tightly interdisciplinary because the needs vary. Now, historically, psychiatry and psychology kind of grew from different places. You know, psychology came more out of what's called experimental psychology out of a university setting. Psychiatry came more out of a clinical setting. They interface and interweave together. There are things that psychiatrists only can do most of the time in the world of addressing the medication needs and, and some of the medical issues that come between psychological issues and physical issues. In the last 20 to 30 years, you know, the roles have gotten a bit more divergent, frankly, because of how the costs are reimbursed. You know, psychologists are trained in psychotherapy. Psychiatrists can be, and many are trained in psychotherapy, but not necessarily, and they do more what I would call general psychiatry. I think it's a horrific term we call psychopharmacology. It's like too many syllables right there. Too many syllables. It's like... You don't go to the heart pill doctor, <laughs> right? You go to the cardiologist. You talk about stuff, and sometimes you talk about your kids, and sometimes you talk about your heart, and sometimes you talk about your poetic heart, right? So your physical heart, your poetic heart, and then you go home. I mean, some people, uh, I know people who have relationships with their cardiologist for 20 years. You don't, So the fields, you know, in social work, they, they deal with more family systems, hospital systems, but many of them also do psychotherapy. So it's there's a lot of overlap in the field. I want to do a throwback, if you would. Yeah, I want to please. do a throwback because back in, I think, 1986 or maybe 96, yeah. there was a um, some kind of spending package that went to the NCI or the NIH, and they used yeah. the word rehabilitation for the first time related to oncology. Yeah. And that word's making a comeback now for some reason. Mm. It was co-opted by opioids and drug abuse. And the idea of being able to rehabilitate yourself to the extent that you're not, maybe not the same, whatever that new normal metaphor crap yeah. is. I, I look to um, 
I mean, I was diagnosed in the in the Cenozoic era of 1996. Sure. This sure. notion of <laughs> mental health. Not Paleozoic. It was definitely the Cenozoic era. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm got it. Yeah. I, yeah. I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say that yesterday. It's in my mind as we record this yeah. today. Yeah. But the notion of you know, like your mental acuity and your your mind body. We're not at yeah. the forefront. I don't. I, I forgive the '90s for being the '90s, but the very first time I ever heard the idea that the practical—that's the word—the practical crap that you have to deal with when you get cancer mattered as much as the care you got. Blew my mind that someone had the balls to come forward. It was Livestrong actually that said. We're here to help you with all the practical shit. They didn't say shit. I yeah. said shit that you now have to deal with. And that included now mental health is, you know, it's a hashtag. It's a trend. We're fully aware of it now. But back yeah. then, huge, huge. And part of it is, you know, the stigma that goes along with being with uh, having an illness. Right. So like the that you're supposed to be strong and tough and fight. I mean, all the military metaphors. I right? hate the, those. I hate those. The martial metaphors like. You know, I have patients that I speak to who really benefit from them. They appreciate them. They, it's good for them. Uh, I'm a big fan of finding the metaphor that works for you. So if the military metaphor works for you, great. But I think a lot of people feel trapped by it. They're like, and I really mean great if it works for you. And, and if it doesn't, find something else. A lot of people say, I'm sitting in a chair getting chemotherapy. Where's the battle? The practical aspects of cancer for a lot of people, as you know, are what has it be so difficult? Because your life is upended in order to save your life. Like financially, it's a big hit for a lot of people. Opportunity costs of things you could be doing or if you get it when you're young, there's career trajectories that get upended. There's savings for the future that gets delayed. There's uh, reproductive goals, you know, having kids or getting married. All of that gets upended. If you're older and let's say you have kids or you have older folks in your life that you need to take care of, how do we do that and keep going to chemo and hold a job? And what if your job doesn't give you sick leave, by the way? A lot of people have jobs that are hourly workers. And if you need to, so I think all those practical aspects, let alone if you have some space just to pause and you go, holy cow. I'm facing this new illness and I know what it means for me, right? Those meaning issues. You can't even start to deal with those until you make sure there's food on your table to feed your kids. Back with our guest after the break. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. 
There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You know, I talk about how 20 years later, we've revealed like an ebb tide, all the progress in medicine and awareness of when you were, I'll just say a consumer, I, you know, yeah. we, we talk about the the uh, idiom of patient, everyone's a patient, and when everyone's something, no one's something, and what does that mean? But yeah. <clears throat> did I just blow your psychiatric mind by saying that? Never yeah. mind, I digress. Yeah. The, yeah. the idea that you can now be, you know, at least maybe in some of the integrative cancer centers, we, we can set a whole of the show about community centers and some of the gaps in funding and access to, you know, psychosocial support, you know, are we now in a place where we can actually quantify having these resources saves money, has benefit, can be billable? You know, we talk about, you know, do you have to be a private practice? Are you incentivized to join a, a health system, which you are a part of? Where do these services now that are non-biological, they're non-clinical, they're, they're academic-ish, but they don't talk, about, it's not the, the, the chemotherapy, it's not the surgery. How do they factor in? Because like there, there are societies now, there's standards of care, there's guidelines, there's right. practices. Right. Talk to me and tell our listeners your thoughts on where the progress has led for you to be a more effective practitioner in the space and where some of the, the holes in the dam still live. Yeah, so that's a great question. Thanks, Matthew. It's a, a, I'll tell you, there's been tremendous progress. I mean, I think that if you want to see where we were, there's a great, there's, it, it, was a, it was a stage play, and then they made it into a movie on HBO, I think it was, I don't really know, but it was with Emma Thompson. It was, it was a movie called Wit, W-I-T, about an English professor who gets cancer and goes into a top-notch cancer treatment center and her experiences and her own growth. And, you know, the, the doctors really didn't know how to talk to patients about anything beyond the science and how lonely and devastating it was. And that came out in the 90s, your favorite decade, apparently. Um, Said no one ever. <laughs> there's, uh, I think there is universal recognition across the field for the need for psychosocial support for patients and families. I mean, there's no, no one's fighting it. No one says this is stupid. No one says I don't do this. No, no one's saying that. Not that they ever really did, but they kind of, it was kind of subtly like that, subtly sidestepped or we'll deal with it later or something. But now it is clear over the national, to get like designation as a National Cancer Institute designated cancer center you need to demonstrate having sufficient psychosocial resources, like including psycho-oncology. Just, it just, and it's a requirement. So that's tremendous progress because the national organizations, the national credentialing agencies are in the United, I'm talking to the United States, obviously. I, don't, uh, I can't speak to other parts of the world. There's clear recognition that this is requisite. The question is, how do you, what does that look like on the ground and then how do you pay for it? And those are bigger questions because every institution has to find a way to answer those questions for itself. You know, the, the value add is always in the patient experience. 
Um, there is clear data that shows that people who have episodes of major depression, significant anxiety, or other untreated, typically pre-existing psychiatric conditions do worse in terms of cancer treatment. They comply less. They just show up less, right? They aren't as engaged in treatment. So treating those clearly makes a difference. And yet that runs up right against the complex reimbursement issues that happen around mental health in this country. Wait, they're complex? So they're complex. I had no idea. <laughs> I Well, you know, that's why you have me on your show. <laughs> <laughs> Explain it to me, Doc. Oh, I wish I could. Uh, this I, is know. My, uh, I know. Uh, it, it's uh, the simplest way, and this is, I'm not an expert in this, but the simplest way to explain it is medical reimbursement traditionally, actually it is changing, but traditionally has been, as you know, fee-for-service. And what typically means by service is procedures get reimbursed more than things that are quote-unquote not procedures. It means I don't like poke you, cut you, insert something in you like that. Like if, um, So mental health, mostly what we do is sit and we talk. And maybe some of us will prescribe things. But that is tremendously important. It's just not procedural in the traditional sense of the word procedure. So it's uh, reimbursement is tough and institutions have to deal with. Now, by the way, mental health is not the only thing that has complicated reimbursements like genetic counseling, um, palliative medicine, fertility, uh, fertility. So things of that sort that that are essential in multiple aspects of working with people with cancer. They're not reimbursed in this traditional model in, the, in a way that makes them viable. Institutions understand this. Most institutions strive to kind of say, we're going to take money from this pot where we have more money and move it to this pot where we have less money. And it's a question of priorities and leadership and uh, desire to excel and the availability of people to actually do that work. And every institution kind of figures it out on its own in different ways. I've done my homework on you. Don't be scared. And again, don't, don't analyze me. But I actually took a look at some of the research papers you published and to get very, very serious, which is rare here on Out of Patience, yeah. is you wrote a paper about suicide in family members and massive depression in oncology. Very important to talk about, you know, often a taboo subject. It makes people uncomfortable, but it does need to be had. And while yeah. I think we could do an entire separate show about this without diving too deep into it, what motivated you to look into this and publish a paper about it? I think the paper you're thinking about is the contingent suicide paper. Is yes. the one you're thinking mm -hmm. about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, almost everything that I've written has come from things that I've learned from patients. I mean, it is a bit of a cliche, but it is as true now as it was when I was in medical school that they are, as a doctor, they're my greatest teachers. So, uh, you know, contingent suicide means someone says, I'm going to kill myself when, or if this doesn't happen, I'm going to kill myself. Like, you know, or someone says, some, for example, someone says, after my loved one dies of cancer, I'm going to kill myself. Or someone says, um, if my pain doesn't get better, I'm going to kill myself. Things like that. And it's a very tough situation because it's heartbreaking. And the the stuff that isn't said uh, from the clinicians, it can be very infuriating, you know, like, because you feel, you know, nothing, there's nothing that, there's nothing that has 
like doctors, nurses, other medical providers uh, uh, feel worse than feeling helpless. Right. Like we feel helpless when someone says, are you going to kill yourself? No. Now? No. But when my mother dies, I might. It's like, what do you do with that? They're not even your patient. They're a family member. It's like someone saying that to you on the subway with a little bit more of an intimate relationship. But it's not, there isn't an official kind of doctor-patient relationship. What do you do? And it's, a, it's kind of that, help, it's that helpless moment. So that's why I did it. That's why I wrote about that and thought about it. And it's, it is the place where you get to be human with another human being with additional knowledge and responsibility as a doctor or as other caregiver. But you uh, be human and you listen and you listen to, you know, one of the things I, one of my mentors used to say, don't, don't just listen to the lyrics, listen to the music. Meaning whatever people say is what they say, but then listen to what's the music behind what they're saying. There's also a fabulous quote, I forget who said it, but that music is the, m music is actually the silence organized between the notes. Oh, wow. Did that blow your mind? That. I'm here to blow your mind. That's You're my blowing my mind multiple times, <laughs> multiple times. No, it's, it's, it's great. You know, like oftentimes there's just, you know, I'm thinking of one example from some years ago of a mother who said, I'll kill myself after my son dies. Her son was dying of cancer. And ultimately the end of that story is she didn't. And it turned out fine, as fine as can be expected when an, uh, a mother loses a son. But it was such an expression of, I can't imagine life on earth without him. And when someone says something like that, like I'll kill myself if and when my son dies, everyone feels awful. All the, you know, all the medical providers feel awful. They don't know what to do. Do you send them to a psych unit? I mean, here she is. Her son's dying in the hospital. Do you, do you admit her? What do you do? You know? And that's where psycho-oncology can be very helpful because we have a little bit of distance from the situation and can listen to the music, not just the lyrics. Right and say, oh, this is the best this particular mother has in the way of communication. All she can say, she can't say what I just said, which is, I can't imagine life on earth without him. Her heart is shattered. All she can say is, I'm going to kill myself when he dies. We take it very seriously, obviously. We put in safety precautions, etc., and do the appropriate assessments along the way. We didn't send her to the psychiatric unit. We're like, we didn't, what are we going to do? Like, this mother is losing her son and she'll be in a psychiatric It didn't work from a human perspective. And we had to be responsible from the safety perspective. So um, um, we were the interpreters of music. And at the end, you know, after her son died, she noticed that she kept breathing. Because even though her mind couldn't imagine life without him on earth, her body kept going. And then her mind caught up. That's you just, know. I mean, that, that's hard, uncomfortable stuff to talk about. I've done many, many shows, and I've, I've been part of many panels and talks about empathy in medicine. Yeah. And this goes beyond the, the apathetic German <laughs> Freud Jung idea of actually mind-melding, in a sense, with the experience of the other human being. Yeah. How do you, 
as a practicing psychiatrist, and maybe this is for, not that I think my audience is a bunch of psychiatrists, but I do have a significant portion of my listeners work in the medical profession. Yeah. How do you carry that weight home with you at night? And what happens at three in the morning? Well, hopefully I'm sleeping at three in the morning. (laughs) 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 Um, Unless I'm up for some early morning hike, which uh, I'm kidding. Um, it's a great question. Uh, there are a couple of things. First, just a shout out to like the friend Freud. Freud got this reputation as this cold, distant kind of Teutonic dude. If when you actually go back and read what he wrote, the man like was nothing but empathy. He was listening to people in a way that nobody had bothered. And somewhere down the line, he gets this cold, distant, you know, bespeckled Germanish characterization. Um, wait, wait, but, uh, wait, wait. Are you uh, hold on, hold on? Yeah, here's yeah. the line. Are you telling me I've been defroided? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I'm bummed. Yeah. yeah. So one way is humor, by the way. Yes. That's, an, that's one answer. One, humor is really important. Um, another way is engaging in my own uh, uh, self-care. I think it's critical. Personal growth and development programs, psychotherapy, and exercise of various types. And lastly, there's a bit, it'll sound weird. Um, It is a bit of a practice. And I'm often unsuccessful at it, but I'm sometimes successful at it, keeping in mind that whatever I hear during the day is not mine. I get to help, bear witness, support, collaborate with, but ultimately it is this person's. And that allows me on better on the good days to say when I'm it's time to go home to leave it wherever it is I'm coming from because it's not mine you know I've got my own stuff to deal with but like <laughs> yeah FedEx <laughs> FedEx owes you that package where the hell is there, it that's right um no it's uh but yeah and it's you know empathy is uh uh is a word that as you probably know m is a prefix that means with and pathos means sadness but it's so it's to be sad with, but it's not my sadness. And that allows me to be empathic because once it's my sadness and I'm over here where I am dealing with my sadness, not contributing to your life in some way, shape or form. You must be a doctor. That was pretty profound. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Med school done you well. But that's very serious. Thank you. I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate. I've heard this phrase, this may not be something anyone's ever heard of, but the ambassadors of dignity are the people who surround our mental health when bad things happen to good people. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I think that uh, we could do a whole conversation just on the role of dignity. Well, let's plan for that because I think that's that's an episode deserved of being uh, created and then we will not um, defraud anyone going forward. Oof. Oof. I, ha- I, I had to. I'm really sorry. You know me. This was expected. I do. If I, I didn't, do. I can't disappoint you. And I hope you, I know. you're psychoanalyzing listen, me. I, I got I to give you the, the groan when you give a groaner. I mean, like that, otherwise you're just like, you know, talking into an echo chamber. You need the feedback. That's why we have a dialogue. You're my kind of doc. Thank you. Dr. Yeah. Guy Maital, Chief of Integrated Care and a psychiatric oncologist and assistant professor at Weill Cornell Graduate School of Medical Sciences. More to come. Thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. My pleasure. 
That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 